Hello, 911, what's your emergency? It's a call that we don't want to make. We don't want to be in a situation where there's a crisis where we have to make that call, but it's a call that indicates a problem. It's a call that's made in times of crisis or emergency. It's a call made, like I said, with the expectation that with faith, someone will come. Someone will come and help. Psalms 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God doesn't mind us calling him. God doesn't mind us crying out to him in time of crisis. He doesn't want just the 911 calls, just when we have an emergency or a crisis. He wants us to communicate with him on a regular basis. So even if there is an emergency, God wants to hear from us. We all know that. But in our text tonight, we're going to see, we're going to witness a 911 call, if you will, a distress call, an emergency call that Jesus takes. Starting with uh, verse 46 in chapter 4, it says, So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick, at Capernaum. This nobleman, what do we know about him? Well, nothing really, only that his title, the title of nobleman, indicates that he was an official of some sort. He had a, a ranking position of some sort, uh, probably uh, underneath uh, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, where they were. The Greek word basilikos for nobleman is a royal, an official. So he had some position in, uh, in government, some position of responsibility. So we're going to see in our text tonight, there's going to be four things that we're going to look at. We're going to focus upon. Number one, the request. Number two, the response. Number three, the report. And number four, the result. Those are going to be four things that we're going to notice as we go through the text tonight. Request, response, report, and result. So number one, the request. We're going to see this in verse 47. It says, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now you can see already, if this is your first time with us, this is your first exposure to Calvary Chapel, we study through the Bible verse by verse. It's important that you're able to follow along with us through the text so we see what God has to say, what God wants to teach us, what he wants to communicate to us. So verse 47, he, he heard, this nobleman heard that Jesus had come out of Judea, the time that he had spent there, and he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, how did he know this? How did he know that Jesus had come out of Judea? Well, Jesus had previously been in Jerusalem. The text told us in chapter 3 that he came out. In chapter 4, he went into the area of Judea and spent some time there. And then we saw last week uh, and the week before that he went into the area of Samaria and he spent some time there. Uh, the story of the woman at the well. And then the townspeople actually came out, and we looked at that last week, and he spent some time with them, spent a couple of days there. So word is getting out that Jesus, who was in Jerusalem, 
few days prior to this, is now in this country, he's available, and this nobleman heard this. Now, he may have heard this from uh, some of his peers that were uh, officials in Jerusalem or Judea. But anyway, he knows that Jesus is going to be in the area. He's got a crisis, as we're going to see. So he wants to go to Jesus to see if there might be something that he could do. Now, why would he think that? Well, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, we know he overturned the money changers' tables. News about that got around, I'm sure. But also, the text tells us that he performed some miracles while he was there. We don't know what they were. The text doesn't tell us. But if he was performing some miracles, there's obviously uh, talk that's going to be going on around town or around the countryside. Israel is not a great big country, so news can travel fairly fast there. So uh, anyway, we see that this man goes to Jesus where he was, which is in Cana, and he implores him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So the guy's in a tough spot. His son, whom he loves, is at the point of death. And it doesn't appear as though there's going to be anything that's going to save him. So I think as a last resort, he's going to make this 911 call to Jesus. He's going to go to Jesus and see if there might be something that the Lord can do. So he's in Cana. That should uh, ring a bell for us because we'd looked at a month or so ago when Jesus turned the water into wine, he was in Cana. So you have these servants that were there at the wedding in Cana that served the wine to the master of the wedding ceremony. And these servants, they may have talked to friends, they may have talked to family, and we don't know exactly, but words out. Jesus is, is around, he's available. And this guy goes to him and it says he implored him, he begged him, he, he pleaded with him, my son's dying. Is there something that you can do? Can you come down and, uh, and see him? This man, this nobleman, he's in a crisis mode. So he makes this request. He goes to Jesus and makes this request. As we saw there in, in verse 47, he implored him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So he comes to Jesus hoping for what? A miracle, doesn't he? He had heard of the miracles of Jesus somewhere, and he had hopes that Jesus might be able to help in this situation. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This nobleman's heart was hurting. His son was, was at the point of death. He had nowhere else to turn. He wanted to seek out the Lord. And it's interesting that being a nobleman, he, he could have sent one of his servants, couldn't he? As a, as a ranking official, as a nobleman, he would have had servants in his household that he could have sent in his place to find Jesus. You go find him, and when you find him, I'll come, or whatever. But no, he's so distraught, he is going himself to try and find the Lord. And then he could have made Jesus come with him. As an official, he could have required Jesus come along with him. But he didn't. He sought after Jesus. He found him in Cana and he pleads with him, come down and heal my son. Jesus, I don't know where else to turn. 
you're my last hope. Actually, he was his, he was his only hope. They sought after Jesus, this nobleman, and, and probably he even had a few people with him. Normally, if you're an official of any type, you have a few people walk along with you just you know, as, as bodyguards, if nothing else. So he doesn't know where to turn. He thinks Jesus may be his last hope. He, he hoped Jesus would come and heal his son. But it's interesting that he didn't know that not coming down and healing his son was even an option. It never crossed his mind that he could come to Jesus and say, my son's sick, uh, could you just heal him? He didn't know that was an option. He thought it was something that if Jesus could actually do this, he would have to be present. So he asks him, he implores him, he pleads with him, please come down, heal my son. So number one was the request. Number two we're going to see now is the response. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say at first glance because it's like, wow, Jesus, where's the compassion in that? But we talked last week. Remember the Samaritans, they heard the word of Jesus and believed in him from his word. But the people in Galilee, we're going to see as we continue to go through the book of John, they're always looking for signs and wonders. That just seems to be their MO. They, they want to see something done. And they'll believe if they see the signs. And so probably the same thing going on here, that Jesus is saying after this man asks, he's not necessarily directing this statement to the man only, he's also talking in general to the people as a whole that might be around there. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. John chapter 2 verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Didn't necessarily mean that they believed in Jesus, who he was and what he was here for. They believed in the signs the miracles and the wonders that he was doing. Those are good things. Maybe some of you have experienced those kind of things in your life where a healing takes place in someone that just didn't seem possible. It just didn't seem like that was going to work at all. But it does. God still works that way today, but he wants our attention not to be focused on the act or the miracle, he wants us to be focused on the source of that miracle, which is God himself. But they shouldn't depend on miracles or wonders to prove God. In and of themselves, signs and wonders cannot change our hearts. They might change our minds. We might think differently about something, but it doesn't mean it's going to change our hearts. We know that from the history of of Israel. They saw miraculous things, wonderful things take place in Egypt and at Mount Sinai. They heard the, the very voice of God. Yet later on, what do we see them doing? They're worshiping a golden calf, aren't they? But we know in our text last week that the Samaritans in verse 42, like I said, they simply heard the word of God and believed. But these, these Galileans, they needed miracles and signs and wonders. They're, they're looking for signs and miracles to benefit them in the here and now. They're not looking for a Savior to benefit them for eternity. 
But I think as we look at this nobleman, I think that his request was a genuine request. I think he was without hope. He'd reached the end of his rope. He, he desired for Jesus to be able to do something for his son. But he's more interested in what Jesus can do than who Jesus is. We see that even in our society today, that people, now nah, they may go to church looking for what church can do for them rather than what they can do for church or what they can learn in that place. But Jesus, through his conversation with him, is going to show him who he really is. He's going to reveal to this man what work that he can do, what he wants to do in his heart, not just even for his son. But So the official's asking for a miracle for his dying son in this environment, again, where people love to see miracles. They're saying, I have a need. Can you fix it? They're not saying, I have sin. Can you forgive it? That's, that's not even on the menu for them right now. They're just thinking, we want to see a miracle. The text does say that Jesus said to him in verse 48, it was a mis- message to everyone that was present there, but specifically Jesus said to him, so he pleads with Jesus once again in verse 49, the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Is this a response to a crisis? Yes. Is it, is it a heartfelt request? Yes, I believe it is, for sure. But it's not like Jesus now finally was moved by this nobleman's request. It wasn't the continual pleading of this man that would change Jesus' mind. Jesus knew all along he was going to do this miracle. He was going to heal this young man. Jesus said to him in verse 50, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was this nobleman, and that's what Jesus told me, go your way, your son lives, would I have doubts? I probably would. You know, I've heard about this guy, I came out into the countryside to find him. I've heard he can work miracles. But in my mind, I'm thinking he's going to go home with me. He's going to do something there like what he did in Jerusalem. And something's going to happen. And my son's going to be okay. But Jesus says, go your way. Your son lives. Six little simple words that are profound because of what happened. But we see the response this man has in the second half of that verse. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. This man is showing great faith. He's showing great faith in the words that Jesus spoke to him. This book is full of words that Jesus speaks to us. Most of us, it's in red letter. (laughs) And we can rest in it. We can have faith in it that it's true, that it is going to come to pass because Jesus spoke it. Jesus doesn't speak anything that isn't true, that doesn't come to pass. So it's going to happen. But here we have this man 
He doesn't have relationship with Jesus at this point. However, these words of Jesus that Jesus spoke, whether it's looking into the eyes of Jesus or it's just Jesus' heartfelt compassion when he says this, because I could read this text so many different ways. Go your way, your son lives, you know. Go your way, your son lives. I mean, any way, any twist that you put on it would maybe give us an indication of how it was being delivered. And I by no means think that I can capture the heart of Jesus in this, but I think he was showing great compassion towards this man. I think he was reaching out to this man, and the words that Jesus would say would be the very thing that he needed to hear and in the way that he needed to hear it. You think about the other healings of Jesus that we see throughout the Gospels. You know, the guy that we're going to look at actually next week. He heals in different ways, doesn't he? He doesn't always do the same thing twice. And so we see the heart of Jesus in all these situations. He's saying the very thing that needs to be said. He's doing the very thing that needs to be done to build faith in the individuals that he's trying to minister to. So what he says here, even though it might seem odd at first, we can rest in the fact that it is exactly what this man needed to hear. And his response even proves it. I mean, if he had said, what? You're not going to go with me? That, that's it? That's all I get? I traveled four hours, you know, walking from Capernaum to get here. And all I get is, go your way, your son lives? This man knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, your son lives. The man heard and the man believed. Jesus said also here in the text, go your way. The man heard that and what? The man obeyed. He didn't say, well, I think I'll stick around for a little while longer. Maybe we can talk a little bit more and see. I just don't know. You know, it's not like he could pick up his cell phone, call back home and say, what's going on? How's my son? You know, he's got another four-hour walk to get back before he can find out. There is no indication in the text in this verse regarding doubt in this man. The nobleman is acting in obedience to what Jesus instructed him to do. He believed his word and he was obedient in what Jesus told him to do. He was walking away in faith that what Jesus said was going to happen. So we had the request, we had the response. Number three, we have the report. In verse 51, and as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So Jesus said, Go your way, your son lives. And at some point in time then, the servants that were at the house with his son determined they were going to go and find their master, find the nobleman, to let him know what took place. But there's some key points in this text to point out. One of them is down towards the end of verse 52. It says what? They said to him, yesterday. 
What's up with that? He's four hours away from home. Yes, it's a long trip walking. But if he's saying your son lives, I don't know about you guys, but I would try to find some way to get home. I would want to witness that. I would want to know for sure that that was the case. We again see the faith and the obedience in this man, this nobleman, because of the way he responds here. He could have went home that day. But it's the next day. This is the next day when the servants come to him. Said yesterday. So he's on his way home now. He spent the night in Cana or somewhere close by. Now he's going home the next day. He runs into these servants and they tell him, your son lives. And he asks, just when did he get better? I'm curious. When exactly did that take place? And they said, the seventh hour. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. This man, we would think, would have headed home to check on his son's condition. But the text here, in the way that it's laid out for us, hints at he had a real peace. He had a real peace about this. He believed the words of Jesus. He understood the words of Jesus. And he had a real peace about what Jesus had to say. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when we're in a crisis situation, we take it to the Lord. The verse said, let your requests be made known to God. We take our requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We don't understand it, but we have a peace about it. And I would think all of us have probably experienced that at one time or another that the peace of God just comes over us and we don't understand what took place. We don't understand what happened. We don't understand all of the circumstances. But what we do know is that we have heard from God and he's given us comfort. He's given us a peace about that situation. Whatever that might be. If a loved one's sick and we're praying for them, it doesn't mean we're still not concerned for them. It doesn't mean that we just stop praying for them. But what it means is, is God can bring you comfort and give you a peace that surpasses. It goes beyond your understanding. and You can understand it. That's what's happened with this nobleman. He has a peace about it. And it's proofed in, uh, in the text because the guy waited till the next day to go home. It doesn't sound like he's in any real hurry at all. It sounds like he is accepting the fact that this was going to happen. He has a peace about it. So the servants met him on the way. They had good news. They had a good report. They wanted to let their master know, the noble know, uh, what had taken place. Now, it's interesting that at the wedding in Cana, Jesus first recorded miracle. So when you hear the healing of the nobleman's son is the second recorded miracle of Jesus. It's just the second recorded miracle in Cana because he did other miracles while he was in Jerusalem. So this first recorded miracle in Cana, we know that Jesus exhibited his power over time. We can't do that. We, time is just out of control for most of us, right? Right? Time creeps up on us on events. Uh, 
even here on Saturday nights. Oh my gosh, it's five till seven. We need to get, we got to head for the church, huh? It's getting close to time to be there. Time is something that we struggle with, don't we? But we see Jesus has power over time. As God, he was the creator of time, as it is. So he doesn't have any problem with that. So he exhibited his power over time by making wine very quickly, didn't he? Most things in nature require time to develop. Now these days you can find out just about anything on the internet. We all know that. So I looked up winemaking, not for any other reason than for our text, okay, just to establish that, but I looked up winemaking and I searched for how long it would take to make wine if you had all of the materials, all the raw materials available to you. Well, I found out that the quickest way to do that is by a winemaking kit, obviously. You know, you search on wine, somebody's going to have a kit to sell you, right? But even with this kit, it could still take up to six months for the fermentation and aging processes to make good wine. So to make good wine, it takes time. Uh, you remember years ago, Orson Welles did the commercial for Paul Masson Wine. He said, we will sell no wine before it's time. Meaning they were going to allow that wine to ferment, to, to age, so that it would be good wine. And we saw that in the wedding at Cana, in that the wine that they served up that Jesus had made from water was considered the best wine. You saved the best to last, they said. So we see that Jesus bypasses this time requirement by creating wine from scratch immediately. Well, you know, it's not a big deal for the creator of the universe to do that. He made grapes, so not a big deal at all. But Jesus isn't limited by time. He created time. Now we see also in this second miracle in Cana, the one that we're looking at tonight, that he wasn't limited by space or geography either. He's healing at a distance, some 20 miles away. It's not the only time, though, that he healed over space. He did it a couple other times. Turn, if you will, to the book of Matthew. Just real quick, hold your place in John. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And we're just going to read this uh, a miracle as well, just to, uh, for us to see another uh, situation where Jesus healed over space. The story of the centurion. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Oh, what faith we see in this guy, right? For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, Surely I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So we see another example of Jesus healing while not being there. Also turn, flip over to Matthew chapter 15. We'll see another instance of that. I think it's good for us to look at other instances where we see it confirmed again what Jesus was doing in this case. It should for us have us look at Jesus in a different light. It should build our faith because of what we see him doing in the scripture. So chapter 15 verse 21 Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You look through this and you're thinking, Wow, Jesus is kind of being harsh here to this woman. What he's trying to do is test her faith. He's trying to test how bad does she really want this. Verse 27, and she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. So we have three people that to our knowledge, Jesus never met. At least there's nothing in the text that said he ever met any of these individuals that he healed at a distance. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we know from the text that he healed all three of these over a distance. And each one of them transpired in a little different way. But all three of them show us two important things. They show us the power of Jesus and the faith of the believer. Because in all three of those cases, the nobleman, the centurion, and this woman, they believed that Jesus could do something about their situation. It's two important lessons for us as well as we look at this, that the power that's required, the power that Jesus has, and the faith that's desired. Jesus has the power that's required, but he desires faith in us for that work. They were healed according to the Lord's power. They were healed according to the Lord's will. And they were healed according to the Lord's timing. We're to have the faith that his power, his will, his timing, it's always perfect in any situation. No matter what the circumstances, it's always perfect. It's his perfect power, his perfect will, and his perfect timing. But it's also interesting to note that in our text, both miracles performed so far in Cana had the involvement of the servants. The servants play a big role in these little stories. At the wedding in Cana, the servants delivered to the master of the feast the water made into wine. 
And here in our text, the servants delivered to their master the message of the healing of his son. They delivered this proof of a transforming work of the Lord. The Lord transformed water into wine and they delivered that message by delivering the wine. The Lord transformed the life of this young man and they delivered that message to their master. As servants and disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to deliver the testimony of what we have experienced in Jesus. What has Jesus done in our lives? What have we been seeing Jesus doing in our lives? And we're to deliver that testimony as well to others. So if someone walks up to you before or after the service here and they say to you, what's God been doing in your life this week? We should, as servants of the Lord and disciples of the Lord, we should have a ready answer of some sort, shouldn't we? We should be able to communicate and say, well, you know, this week, ah, man, I was going through this or that, and I just, you know, I went to the Lord, and He just gave me a piece about it. I cried out to the Lord, and He showed me what I needed to do. God is working in our lives. We just need to be aware that He's there. We need to have spiritual eyes on, our hearts opened up, so we can see that work that He's doing in us. And it's for our good. We know that. We would agree with that. But it's also for the good of others. God wants to take the testimony that he's given us, the witness that he's given us of the work that he's done in our lives so that we can impact the lives of others. We see these servants doing that. We're to deliver the message of his transforming work whatever and wherever it is. And we don't always understand how Jesus does it. We don't always understand where Jesus does it. We don't understand why Jesus does it. But we know in our own lives, we're the result of that. As if we look at ourselves and we see the work that Jesus has done in, it, in us, it's a testimony of his faithfulness to us. And that should build our faith. It just should. So number four, the result. What do we see from the result of this? We had the request, the response, the report that the servants brought, and now we have the result of this whole dialogue, this whole miracle that took place. Verse 53, So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. It's just amazing when we have those moments that we hear God did a work and it lines up with what we were praying about. Yeah, in this case, it happened in the same hour. In those other two stories we looked at, it happened within the same hour. For us, it may or it may not. But when we pray for something and we find out that it's been answered in just what it is that we needed, it builds our faith. We can rest in that and just go, wow, look, look what God did. You know, when, when we were looking to plant the church here in Berthoud, uh, some of you already know this story, but uh, humor me as I go over it again. We were praying that God would provide a building for us. We, uh, at that time, uh, the typical uh, method for Calvary Chapel in planting churches would be to start a home Bible study and see how God grows it. That's really just not what God put on my heart. He said, plant a church. And so I felt like, well, we're going to need a place to meet. 
So I went to the Chamber of Commerce office here in town, uh, talked to Dee down there, and I, hey, here's what we've got going on. Do you know of any place that we might be able to, she said, well, how much are you wanting to spend? <laughs> well, <laughs> we got nothing, okay? <laughs> We're starting from scratch. Uh, so the, you know, obviously the cheapest thing we can find is, is, is really good. And she said, well, you know, I don't know for sure, but why don't you walk down there on the corner, the brick church building on the corner, and talk to them. I know that they're, uh, they're a small fellowship and they meet on Sunday mornings, but you said you wanted to meet on Saturday nights. And yeah, so we came down, me and another, one of the other guys. And Pastor Steve, who pastors the church here on Sunday morning, was just in here sweeping, cleaning some things up, and came in, we introduced ourselves, and I just poured out my heart to Pastor Steve, what God had put on my heart, what it is that we uh, felt like God was leading us to do, and then asked the craziest question that you could ask, is it possible for us to, you know, rent your building on Saturday nights? And I loved his response. He said, it's not my building. He paused, and I thought, oh, goodness, well, I wonder whose it is. And he said, it's God's building. Yeah, <laughs> you're right, it is God's building. And he said, you know what? If it's God's building, I don't think there would be any problem with you guys renting it at all. So he talked to his board, and they just blessed us. But we've had a situation, and I, I really wasn't going to go here tonight, but I just, I don't feel like God's leading me to do that. So I want to be obedient to it. We've had a situation where the building has worked for us very well since October, but it's, it's tough for us with children's ministry. Because if you've been downstairs, um, there's just a couple rooms that we can use down there. The bathrooms are downstairs. Uh, it's good for the kids, not so good for the adults. But we've got age groups down there where we're going kindergarten through fifth grade, and that's quite a wide margin to try to minister to difference in age there. So we've been praying God might provide something for us to solve that situation. We didn't know, and it looks like God has done that. Uh, we're hopefully going to sign a lease on a building right across the street this, this week that we can use for ministry. Why? Because we've been praying, but God has been providing. God has been blessing. You guys have been here. You know our heart on this. The whole time you've been here, any of you that's been here for any length of time, we've never asked for a dime, and we won't. Because we believe that where God guides, God provides. If God is leading us in a direction, God has already got the provision in place for that direction He wants us to go. Now, I've said all that with a whole lot of confidence, but as a pastor, it's a little scary too. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a big step for us. Uh, not, not so much from, we know that God's going to provide, it's just, it's just that next step in uh, our growth as as a fellowship. I'm excited about it. Everybody I talk to gets excited about it. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see what God does with that. But God provided again as we were praying for this, another man that we met that owns the building that is just so willing to work with us. That wasn't something that we did by uh, a sales pitch or great marketing or uh, you know, just because I can talk a lot, <laughs> but it was because God had prepared his heart for it as well. So God's doing that work, and we can rejoice in that. I just, I look forward to what he's going to continue to do. What he's done so far has just been immeasurably more than we could ask or think. You know, we talked early on that from the beginning, 
you know, we really didn't have plans to be a mega church of any kind, you know, and so far it's worked out right according to plan, uh, <laughs> just like we thought, right? <laughs> We're still a small fellowship. But we see the result in this text of what took place. He made his request known to the Lord. The Lord answered his request. He gave him the word that his son had been healed. He believed it. He had the faith. He could just rejoice in this. And if that wasn't enough, he asked his servants, now when did that happen? The seventh hour. That was the very time I was talking to Jesus and he said, your son lives. So he was healed right at that moment, right when Jesus spoke. Which did what? It built his faith even more. You see, God's never done with us. He's constantly working in us. He wants to continually grow us. And that should be a faith builder for each and every one of us. So he believed. And it says from the text that he himself believed and his whole household. The miraculous power of Jesus developed a greater faith in this man. And this man had an impact on his whole household. That wasn't just his family members. The servants were considered a part of the household as well great work of God in this man's life and so it impacted his whole household guys that's a that's a real lesson for all of us God reached the man and the man reached his household he's called us to be the spiritual leaders in our homes and so as he talks with us as he encourages us as he builds our faith we have opportunity to minister to the rest of our family, the rest of our household, and minister to them so that they will come to know Jesus as well and have that relationship with him so their faith can grow. So through the faith and belief of this one man, his entire household believed as well. They were saved. You see, Jesus could have just saved the boy's life. Did it surprise Jesus that this this boy was on his deathbed. Jesus is God. He knows everything. We know that. So I don't think he was surprised by the man's request at all. But Jesus wasn't just looking at, well, I can do this miracle and save this boy's life. He was looking at the bigger picture. How can I save the whole family? <laughs> and he does. Through the saving of this boy's life, he changed the heart of the father, which changed the hearts of the entire household. Jesus saves all of them. So number one, we saw in our text the request, please heal my son. Number two, we saw the response. Jesus said, your son lives, go your way. The report, the servants say, your son lives. He was actually healed. And the result, he himself believed and his whole household. Gang, that's something that we need to think about. Those four points seem pretty simple as we look at this text. But if we're really looking at the work God is doing in our lives, we'll have those moments, we'll have those benchmarks where we'll say, yeah, God was there, God did this, God did that, and it's a faith builder for us, but it's something that we can look back on and have confidence in the fact that God was there and working, which should build in us faith for the future so that when something comes up again, a crisis, 911 call, whatever it is, we know that we can trust in the Lord and He will answer our prayer. He will answer our request in His perfect will, in His perfect timing, with His, with his perfect love. Amen?